It is a pleasure to be back here once again as we pick back up in our series through Genesis 1 through 11. As we do so and find ourselves back in the story of creation, we find ourselves in Genesis 1, and we'll be covering verses 26 through Genesis 2, verse 3. So as we prepare ourselves for that, let's begin by reading the first few verses in our text today. Genesis 1, we'll begin this morning by reading verses 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Many of you have no doubt heard someone use the phrase that that says something along the lines of pulling oneself up by their own bootstraps. Many of you have heard this kind of imagery used, yes, no, maybe. If you've ever used, or if you've ever heard that phrase, it's very likely that it was used in, you know, as a way to encourage the importance of hard work. People use this phrase to emphasize the importance of self-reliance, of making sure you don't need other people, making sure that you're disciplined enough to take care of yourself through your own personal effort. It is thus used as a positive, praiseworthy thing. There are a number of reasons why this phrase can fall short. One of the main reasons being is that when that phrase was originally used back in the 1800s, it was actually being used to mock the idea of self-reliance. It was supposed to be a funny concept to say that someone is so foolish as to think that they could literally grab the straps on the back of their boots and lift themselves up off the ground. This was to mock the idea that you don't need others. For some strange reason over the years, it was flipped on its head and became a praiseworthy idea. And despite the fact that it defies the laws of physics, it continues to be used today, and I think to a certain extent it's relatively harmless. But there are many people that take that type of phrase and its emphasis on hard work and self-discipline and self-reliance, and they take it to the extreme where it not only defies the laws of physics, but it really goes against a pretty fundamental concept taught in Scripture. It oversimplifies not just work, as we'll see it presented here in Genesis 1. But it's a simplification of humanity. For it oftentimes is used to reduce us and reduce the value of people to be defined by what they do rather than what they are. It defines a person's worth in terms of how much they benefit society at large or how much is in their bank account. This is, of course, very dangerous for not only fails to have an appreciation of work, but again, it fails to understand the complex and beautiful concept of the Imago Dei in Scripture. That idea that we are made, each and every one of us, in the image of God. As we explore Genesis 1 this morning, my prayer is that we might have a, a richer idea of what that means. We might see how Moses defines that image in terms of our unique relationship with God, with our fellow man, with work, and also, ultimately, in our idea of hope. And as a result of this, I pray that we might not only walk away with a better appreciation of what work is biblically, but we might have a better appreciation of what God has accomplished in us and for us and what he is yet to accomplish for us in the future, or what he still promises to do, I should say. With that being said then, before we dive into that image of God and how it's defined in Scripture, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this morning. And as we prepare to dive into Genesis 1 and 2, we are excited. Excited to see the beauty of your artistry yet again in the story of creation. We are eager to explore a concept that is so oftentimes ignored in our society today, both by believers and unbelievers. And yet, as we'll see it as it's presented in Genesis, we're excited to see just how significant this doctrine is, how amazing it is to consider what you've accomplished in the creation of us. God, as we explore this topic, I pray that we might be convicted, 
Convicted in the ways that we oftentimes overlook the beauty and worth of life. Convicted by how oftentimes we devalue work in our everyday calling. And ultimately, God, I pray that we're not simply convicted, but that we are inspired. Inspired by the beauty of this text and inspired not by the concept of what we're called to do today, but by the promise of what lies ahead of us in the future, God. A future that is unlike anything that we've ever seen but a future that all of us anxiously await. We love you, God, and we pray as always that you remove all distractions from us, God. I pray for unbelievers who are here. Might they see the beauty of your creation and in so doing, Lord, might they see the the beauty of you today. Might they come to an understanding of how far they have fallen in their own sin and might you convict them of that sin and cause them to be brought to the point of saving faith. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, again, I pray for our encouragement today, Lord. I pray that you build us up in the faith, and I pray that we walk away with a richer and greater appreciation of not simply of who we are, but of who you are, God, and how that ought to affect every single thing we do, say, and think. Bless this time, God. Might it all be done and spent in a way that's pleasing to you, in a way that glorifies your Son, the perfect image, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we turn again to Genesis 1, we of course find ourselves back in the story of creation, a story that we began just a couple weeks ago. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, you walked through those first six and a half days of creation, amazing, awe-inspiring days in which we see God speak something from nothing. We see that beautiful and awe-inspiring artistry of the Creator as He brings about water and land as he prepares his great canvas and then fills it with plant life, with animal life, with fish, with birds in the sky, everything in between. In each of these days, as we discuss, we see how the God of Scripture is infinitely better than any other so-called God. That the story of creation is infinitely greater, infinitely more complex and amazing, particularly when compared with the other creation myths from that same day and time As glorifying and as beautiful as those first six days were, however, we've yet to really scratch the surface. For it's only when we come to the end of creation, it's only when we come to see humanity and the the final day of creation, day seven, in which we really see the glory of God on display. For in this final day, we see for the first time really the image of God projected and given to one of his own. As we do this, then we explore again the concept of the divine image and us as image bearers. As I mentioned already, we'll see four ways that this image is reflected. In each way, we'll look at the model that is God, we'll look at the resulting creation, and we'll look at the practice, that is to say, how it affects our daily life. We begin then with the most important aspect of being made in the image of God, and that speaks to our divine connection. We find that again in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. There again we read, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The key words I want us to pick up on in this first point are those words, image and likeness. We see Moses using these words repeatedly and and for good reason because they speak to something profound and certainly unique when it comes to our nature as man. At first glance, these words, image and likeness, might not inspire a great deal of, of reverence and awe in many of us. For these words can be used at a fairly shallow depth. These words oftentimes can be used to describe simple family resemblance. That is to say, you can can refer to the image or likeness to describe how a child oftentimes will look like their father or mother. The Bible uses this language. If you look over to Genesis chapter 5, for instance, you see how these same words are described in that manner. For in Genesis chapter 5, Beginning in verse 3, we see these other words of Moses. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So there you see the way that oftentimes we might think of image and likeness. You see this idea of it referring to simply 
family resemblance, something we still speak of today. For oftentimes when someone has a kid, the immediate conversation is, well, who do you think they look like more, the mom or dad? I have two kids. I swear they're my kids, but they look a lot like their mom, right? That's the constant reflection. They look exactly like their mom, particularly my daughter, who both physically as well as personality-wise is a miniature of my wife, Jamie. And I mean that in a good way, of course. We see that resemblance. And that is certainly one of the ways that Moses is using this language here in Genesis 1. But to really appreciate the, the shock of this language, we have to understand the other common way this phrase would have been used in Moses' day. For in the days of Moses, to say that someone bore the image or likeness of the Creator was to say or suggest not just that they look or act like them, but it's to suggest that they live as some special representative of that God. They are somehow directly connected to that which is divine. Thus, they carry with them a special level of power, of significance, of worth, of value. In those ancient cultures, of course, that divine connection was reserved for only a a, a few individuals in society. And you can probably guess who. It's reserved for the political rulers. And so, in the experiences of the Hebrew people, they would have heard this language before, but they would have heard it in connection to Pharaoh, the political ruler that enslaved them. For in Egypt, it was Pharaoh and Pharaoh alone that was made in the image of Ra, or Re. He alone bore that imprint. In the same way, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was only those kings and queens, high officials, that could say they bore the image of their gods, of their creators. In light of that usage, you can appreciate the shock of what Moses is suggesting here. For again, remember who Moses is speaking to. Is Moses speaking to some grand political ruling class? No. Is Moses speaking to people who have really made a name for themselves? No. Is Moses speaking to people who even own a home? No. He is speaking to a group of Hebrew people that still live in the wilderness, who most recently existed as slaves to the Egyptians, and who are still awaiting an entrance into a promised land that they're still going to have to fight to take over. And yet as Moses speaks to those people, to men, women, and children who have done nothing with their life from a worldly perspective, he is able to say with a straight face, all of you, all of you are made in the image of the almighty creator of the universe. Man, woman, child, all of you have a special divine connection that no one can ever take away from you regardless of your political class, regardless of your socioeconomic status, you bear the resemblance of the Almighty. Moses says that amazingly to these Hebrew people, and and he says it to us as well. For as we read this account, we read that that God who created everything from nothing steps back and when he makes humanity, he makes them, he makes us in his image which means a number of things, but most importantly, it means that the resulting creation has that unique relationship with God. God shows a special level of care and concern for people, a level of care and concern he does not show for, anyone, or for anything else in creation. God shows a special level of, of care and deliberation even in this creation account for, as you perhaps notice, and every other day we, we see kind of creation take place in a pretty predictable manner. That is to say, the second, third, fourth, fifth day begins and God simply says, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and he does it. But as day six begins, or at least as day six B begins, God steps back. And God says, now, now see what I will create. Now see what we can bring about, that being humanity. You see the special relationship of man with God, also in terms of what God gives his people to do, and we'll explore this a great deal later. But for the time being, consider these words of the psalmist in Psalm 8, where the psalmist too reflects on this unique connection that we as humanity have with God. In Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3, David the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? 
and the Son of Man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. David here is praising God in light of just how incredible it is to consider the special role he has given him, David, but also the special role he's given all of us. And it's, it's a, a sense of awe and wonder that all of us should share. For as we consider the complexity and the beauty and the majesty of creation as it's laid out in days 1 through 6, it, it defies all logic for us to think that that was all created both for God's glory, but it was prepared for you and me. That God makes those beautiful creatures, God creates the beauty of, of land, of flowers, of all these things, and he gives it to you to rule over. That's an amazing thought. And it's something that only humanity can claim for ourselves. It is something that only humanity shares with one another. It's hard for us to imagine what this image looks like day to day. And so it is perhaps helpful to consider the fact that we see this unique relationship in perfection in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, of course. For as Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, as well as 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 4, Jesus is that perfect image of the Father. And so if we want to see what that image looks like day to day, we, we simply can consider what Jesus Christ did, how everything he did was connected to the Father. Every word he uttered was the will of the Father. Every activity he accomplished was in direct connection with the will of God. We see in Jesus then that picture of a relationship with God, and we see in Jesus the picture of a relationship with his fellow man, with all of creation. We see Jesus show care and concern, not just for that which is spiritual, but for the physical world as well. We see Jesus take time to eat a meal. We see Jesus take the time to rest. We see in Jesus then again a reminder that our physical bodies, even as fallen as we are, are still blessed by God. And is still very much a part of what makes us made in his image. Thus, as we consider this sixth day of creation and as we answer the question of what does it mean to be made in the image of God, we begin here with this unique divine connection. And as we consider this, the immediate application of the immediate questions we must ask, quite frankly, are, okay, so, so how well am I doing here? Namely, how well does my daily life, do my daily routines reflect the image of God? How oftentimes am I thinking of the fact that I am dependent upon God in everything? How oftentimes do I think of the fact that all of my activities are to be a, a, a mirror image, a reflection of the Creator? These are humbling questions. For it's a, an image, it's a concept that immediately forces us to be humbled. For yes, while we rejoice and we thank God for the beauty of His creation, we also must immediately admit how far we have fallen we must immediately be struck by the fact that we are not always representing God in the most appropriate of manners, are we? But as humanity, as man and woman, this is our calling. We are made in the image of God and thus we have this divine connection. Left there, and this concept would seem still idealistic, still too hard for us to grasp. But thankfully, as we continue to move forward, we see the image of God doesn't just speak of, of this divine connection, but it also speaks, and it's also exemplified in terms of our community. We see this again in verse 27. Read with me again. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As we consider this second point regarding our community, it's important to see another key concept that can easily be missed when reading this creation account. That concept is, is manifested in these plural terms. We saw this earlier in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, perhaps you caught it already. For there God says, God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make, God, make man in our own image. Why would God say, let us make man in our own image? Why is he speaking in the plural form? 
Well, then the answer to that, we again see the model of humanity. We see the model of his creation. For we see that while God does exist singular, in a singular fashion, that is, there is one God, as we've also already discussed in weeks past, God exists in three persons, that which we refer to as the Trinity. Again, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you saw this, this aspect of God already in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, or 1 through 4, I guess I can see. For there, earlier in Genesis 1, we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Already in Genesis 1, Moses has, has hinted at or blatantly spoken to the fact that the singular God exists in these three different persons, or at least two persons here in Genesis 1. That is, God the Father and God the Spirit, he, uh, the one whom we call the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of Scripture. As many of us are also already aware, however, there is that third person of the Trinity, who is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And as we discussed weeks ago, we see in books like John that Jesus Christ also played a vital part in creation. And so when God says, let us make man in our image, it is believed he's speaking within that Trinitarian community. Therefore, if he is going to make someone or something in his own image, it would make sense for him to create something that exists in a community as well. And so we see God in creation of man. We see he simply doesn't create one individual human being. Rather, we read, God created them, male and female. We see here then the resulting product being a product of man and woman, the first human community. Now in this community, we can discuss at great lengths the differences that man and woman would have had even from the beginning. For just as the three persons in the Trinity have different roles, so too in the creation of man and woman does God create, design individuals living in community to have different roles, to carry out different purposes. We'll talk about those differences much more next week as we look at man living in the garden. But for the sake of this morning, I'd rather not focus so much on those differences, although they exist, so much as I want to focus on the fact that these different individuals are, in every other sense of the word, equal. That is to say, God does not create a man as the image bearer, and then says, you know what, you need a lesser creature to help you out as well. I'm going to give you a woman to do with as you please. And he doesn't present it that way. No, man and woman, from the beginning, are presented as entirely equal in terms of them being made in the image of God, in terms of them representing the Almighty Creator, in terms of them being co-heirs, in terms of them being vice-regents amongst all of creation. This equality while maybe obvious to some of us in here this morning, would have been shocking in that ancient Near Eastern world. For from the beginning, or at least from since the time of the fall, the concept of man and woman being equal would have been entirely foreign and bizarre to the vast majority of cultures. For men were seen as the supreme creation. Women were seen as an object to be owned and treated however they wanted to be treated by the man. You can see this in countless examples in ancient culture. And yet from the very beginning in Genesis, we are taught that which is completely opposite. We are taught that men and women share that equality before God. And they, must both, they, they both then must be treated with proper respect and honor, care and concern. That equality, of course, is not just found in the Old Testament. We move into the New, and we see the same equality brought out under the New Covenant, under the New Creations as believers. Again, something that might seem commonplace to all of us, and yet something that would have been shocking. is language written by Paul in passages like Galatians 3. For in Galatians chapter 3, speaking of the New Creation, speaking of the church, we see Paul say this. Galatians 3. Verses 26 through 29. There he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And so again, both in the Old Testament and that original story of creation, as well as in the New Testament, in the new creation, in, in terms of the, the creation of the church, the new covenant, we see that equality shared both in terms of male and female equality, as well as, as we get into Galatians, equality amongst ethnicities. Equality amongst all socioeconomic statuses. Equality amongst every single human being. Again, for many of us in here who have read through books like Galatians or have read Genesis 1, we might initially simply nod our heads and say, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, everyone's equal, great. But if we take a step back again, we understand how radical this has always been in in a fallen world, hasn't it? For time does not permit us to explore the countless ways that since the fall of man, humanity has attempted to drive a wedge between people based on gender and sex, based off of ethnicity, based off of wealth, based off of political alliances. This is not something just reserved for the ancient Near Eastern world, for of course we see it throughout all of history. Those of us who took basic American history, of course, are well aware of that blot upon our own history, are we not? For we study things like the three-fifths compromise of 1787, and we read how slaves were treated as three-fifths of a person. It's a heinous offense. It's wicked, just as was the slave system of our early nation. Yet people did it. Why? Because it was just what humanity did. We as America, of course, are not alone in that, and praise be to God that we got past that through the Civil War. But we'd be foolish to assume that we live in a world in which equality is just an assumed part of our daily worldview. For all of us have those blind spots, and all of us are, are prone to treat those who are unlike us as lesser than us. We are prone to give respect and dignity to those that we love and care about and share all of our same vantage points, but those who disagree with us, we speak of as if they are animals, as if they are beneath us. We speak of them as if they have somehow lost the image of God when the truth of the matter is they have not. For even past the fall, we see mankind is still spoken of as as holding to this dignity of possessing this value that cannot be taken away. We understand then that both pre-fall as well as post-fall, this community is essential. And so the resulting practice, again, bears worth repeating, for if we understand we were designed to live in community, well then we first and foremost must strive to build up that community. Beginning here at Cape Bible Chapel, we ought to work tirelessly towards really building up relationships with each other. Because we understand that we all share that image of God and because we understand that we need to live in community. Again, so oftentimes in Christian circles, that idea of independence, that concept of not needing anyone else is spoken of as if it is somehow praiseworthy. But it is actually inhuman. It is against the character of God to try to live in perpetual isolation. I remember when I was in seminary and I had friends that were of the Eastern Orthodox persuasion. In Eastern Orthodoxy, they would speak of of monks and individuals that would go off and live in complete solitude for year after year after year. And, And I had friends that would speak of these individuals as if they were somehow a higher form of human. When in reality, I think biblically, you can argue the opposite. For man was not intended to live alone in the desert. Man was intended to live in community with others that he could perpetually be built up by them, so he could perpetually be used to build them up. And so as believers, are we, brothers and sisters in Christ, building up a healthy community here? Are we striving to use our gifts in a way that is pleasing and beneficial to the body of believers here at Cape Bible Chapel? I did not intend on this to just be a plug for small group, but I'll go and do it. Be in a small group. Be in a supper club. Use your gifts Be vulnerable before brothers and sisters in Christ who can hold you accountable, who can call you out on your blind spots, and who can be used by God to make you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. 
This building up of a community is an essential part of our life as believers. But this community, of course, also has implications beyond the walls of our church, doesn't it? For this aspect of our humanity also requires that that we actively speak out on behalf of others when we see image bearers being mistreated. It requires us not not only to, to treat others with love and respect, but to call out wickedness when we see prejudices in society. You think of the example of the book of Proverbs. One of the passages in Proverbs that, that I've heard quoted in past that is so convicting is Proverbs 31. Hear this calling in Proverbs 31, verse 8 through 9, language that's given to King Lemuel, but words that can be applied to all of us. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, we read, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. This is not simply the calling of kings and queens. This is the calling of all ambassadors of the Creator. And so, brothers and sisters, are we doing this? Are we rightly doing this in terms of, say, speaking out against abortion, something we should do as believers in daily community? Are we speaking out against racial prejudices when we see them? We should. Are we speaking out against any form of injustice? We ought to do these things. Again, not because we agree politically with others, but because we understand that every single person is made in the image of God. And so we ought to be the first to acknowledge how wicked it is to treat anyone as lesser than an ambassador of the king. There's so much more that could be said for this, but but I think to a certain extent we get this, don't we? This is why murder is such a heinous offense. This is why September 11th, that which we just acknowledged the 20th anniversary of, was such a horrific thing to witness. For it's a senseless taking of lives. It is an act of utter wickedness, of pure evil. We're horrified by that. Both believers and unbelievers alike are horrified when they see these lives taken and they're horrified because they intrinsically know that this is not right. This is not the way people ought to be treated. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We understand this as believers, not simply because death is wrong, We understand it because the death of that which is made in the image of God is tragic. And so we strive, or we must strive daily to build up that community, to defend others when they are mistreated. We must strive to not simply do this in action, but also in our words as well. For we understand the value of speech in James. We understand the value of our thoughts. We understand that we need each other. And so our daily lives and our actions should reflect the fact that we do need each other and we're dependent upon each other. This too is a vital part of what it means to be made in God's image. And so when we understand that understanding of community, that necessity of community then, that we can then really appreciate the beauty and glory of our daily work that we're called to accomplish. That work is highlighted and given in verses 28 through through 30. We have not read this yet, so follow along with me. For having made man in community, we read, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree which is fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food to you, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the sky, and everything which moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. In a similar manner to which God has given other parts of creation marching orders, so too we see that when God creates man, he gives us a very clear calling. And what is so significant here is the fact that only our calling is a reflection of what God has already accomplished. For again, the language given to man is this language of multiplying, of filling the earth. It's the language of subduing, having dominion. In each of these things, we see God calling us to do that which God has already done himself. For God has, of course, quite literally made life. And he then tells man, now you do it. You make people and fill the earth. I've made the first image bearers, now you multiply, fill the earth with other image bearers of me. The work does not simply end there with having more people. It also carries through in this language of subduing the earth, of having dominion over the earth. 
This language, perhaps veiled in some of our translations, is the language of cultivation. It's language of creation. It's, cre- it's language of gardening, really. For God, having made life and prepared land, prepared water, now tells humanity to go, do the same, expand, take the raw materials which I've given you and expand upon it, produce it. Expand the garden that I've begun in Eden. Create civilizations. Build cities. Do all of those things which we still understand to be part of making culture. It's a beautiful concept. And we can see it applied to really any line of work. Most clearly, I think, we can see this type of language in the arts, that which oftentimes we devalue in our culture, but something that's precious and clearly reflecting the character of God. For what is making music, but, but taking raw material of sound, of noise, and arranging it in a way that is beautiful, that is moving, that is creation, that is cultivation. What is any painting, but thinking through images and taking raw materials of paints and a canvas and, and making something beautiful, making something orderly. The same thing can be said to anyone telling a good story. For they are simply taking experiences, taking language, showing mastery over it to make stories which are moving, which are inspiring. The same thing can be applied, though, to all types of work. Whether it's the work of a parent who's discipling and raising their kid, you do that work to to instill honor in the life of that little one. You're creating more order in the future. You're helping build them up and create a better citizen and hopefully... If it is the will of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In the workplace, we are used to bring about order. We're used to use our creativity in a way that is honoring to God. This is true both for those jobs which pay well and those jobs which pay nothing. All of it is done as a reflection of the perfect creation and creativity of God. It's a beautiful picture of all work and something that we must remember daily because it is something that is so oftentimes forgotten in our culture. For we so frequently devalue work if it does not pay enough. We so frequently speak so highly of of these jobs that just happen to pay a lot of money. As if making a lot of money somehow makes you a better Christian. It does not. And so we must be quick to, to pay honor to all types of work. Whether it's work done in the home or in the workplace, it is all pleasing God if it's done with the right heart, with the right motivation. As believers, I think there's also another odd way we can devalue work which is in the practice of speaking highly only that of only of that work which uh, really can be called ministry i've seen this a number of times with college students and perhaps some of you college students can relate to this there's that experience that some people have in college where they have a perfectly god-honoring major and they have a perfectly God-honoring desire to work in some field, and yet they come to Christ, and they're made to feel like they're somehow less of a believer if they don't go on staff with a ministry, if they don't go overseas and become a missionary. And so you see a lot of college kids feel this guilt of getting a regular job out of college, as if God is disappointed in you. He is not. And if you have any confusion as to what this looks like, there's a lot of men and women sitting around here that would be happy to tell you what it looks like to serve God in the workplace what it looks like to work a nine-to-five, what it looks like to just raise kids or be in the home, whatever it is. Regardless of where you serve, you can honor God. It does not require you make a lot of money, nor does it require you to have the name of a pastor or missionary. It just requires you to do the work that you're called to accomplish. This is why books like Proverbs and Proverbs 12.11 or in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 3, places such a high premium on, on work, and work of all kinds. Not because it provides money for us, but because it is a way that we reflect our creator. God designs us to do this, just as he designs us to live in community. And so as God makes us in his image, we see that he not only causes us to bear that image in terms of our unique connection to him, but he causes us to bear that image in terms of our community. And he causes us to bear that image in terms of the work we accomplish. And having done all of that in verse 31, we read gloriously that God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is a beautiful picture of God's creativity. And if the story were to end here, it would seem like the most motivational speech to get up and work. 
Do more better, people. Let's go get them. And it would be easy again to summarize Genesis 1 as if the concept of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps is Genesis 1.32. But it's not. For the story of creation is, shockingly, not over yet, is it? For we see that the ultimate meaning and end of creation not until chapter 2. Follow along with me as we read there. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. As we come to the seventh day, we come to a day that stands out from every other day. For on day seven, God does things that he has not done yet. Namely, he rests, he ceases from his creative activity. That's what we typically associate with day seven. But secondly, what does God then do to day seven? He blesses it. He consecrates it. Why would he do that? And if God's going to consecrate any day, shouldn't it be the day in which he made us? That's a pretty good day. That seems to be a good day to remember. Yet God only consecrates this day, day seven. God takes this one day that has no other correlating, correlating day, and he says, this day is special. This day is entirely dedicated to me. Therefore, I will rest. And not only that, the resulting image, man which is made in his image, is also ultimately given the command to rest on the, th- on the seventh day. In reflection of their creator who rests, mankind is commanded to also rest. It is from this model that we ultimately understand the concept of the Sabbath in Scripture. A command that we can easily overlook and not give a lot of importance to, and yet, in terms of creation, it is just as important as any other day of the week. For it is on this day that we are particularly devoted to God, and we see this particular devotion used for a variety of ways. The first way, and perhaps most obvious way, is found in passages like Exodus 20. For in Exodus chapter 20, we read one of these first references to the Sabbath day. In Exodus 20, verse 8, Moses says this about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter your male or your female servant, or your cattle or sojourner stays with you. For, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When the people of God and Israel rested on the seventh day, they did it as a means of remembering creation. And as they did this, they did something that no other people group did. For you see, other people groups celebrated similar feasts that the Israelites had. Other people groups, again, had days of creation similar to the story, but they did not have the Sabbath day. Because from a human standpoint, a Sabbath day is lunacy. Because in the midst of a busy agricultural season, you don't take a day off. You need to work the fields. There is always more work to be done if you are going to provide for yourself, and yet the Israelites are told in a very blunt fashion, no, 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 you take the day off. You do nothing in it, not you, nor your servants, nor anyone even traveling through your homeland. You take this day off, and you do it to remember that God did this first. It's an act of remembering creation, but more than that, and perhaps you pick up on it there, it's an act of remembering that it is God ultimately who provides. It's a reminder that we do not work for ourselves. We work as a service to God and as a reflection of God and what he has already done and will continue to do. That reminder is found not just in Exodus, but in Deuteronomy. For in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, again, as Moses speaks of the Sabbath, we read this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, the Lord your God. Any you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or ox or donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and female servant may rest as well as you. 
And here's why you do it. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Here we see really the greater picture here for Israel. It's not just a remembrance of, of creation. It's a remembrance of, of provision, of redemption. It's a reminder that you can take a break from your work because ultimately God is not dependent upon you for your preservation. God will provide just as he provided your creation, just as he provided your redemption. And so again, throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God practice the Sabbath, being commanded to remember this Sabbath for it reminded them of where they have come from. It reminded them of why they're in the promised land. And most importantly, as we read throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it was a reminder of that future rest that they ultimately were looking forward to. For as they looked ahead to the promised land, they they were looking ahead to that rest being perpetual. They were looking forward to finally being in the land in which it would be flowing with milk and honey, in which it wouldn't be such a toilsome existence. And as glorious as that picture was, as beautiful as the promised land was, was it a place of rest perpetually for them? No. No, for even as they came to the promised land, they still toiled. Even as they came to the promised land, there was still captivity because there was still sin. And so even after entering the promised land, there that Sabbath remained as a reminder of the rest that that was just escaping them. The rest they couldn't quite get to, but the rest they knew they were designed to enjoy. And so weekly, the people of God were given this reminder. Weekly, they were given this picture, of course, until you come to the New Testament, in which we learn that Jesus Christ is the ultimate provider of this rest. Jesus Christ, in passages like Hebrews 3 and 4, is the one that that brings us that rest eternally. And so we come to Hebrews 4, and we pick up and we hear that theme of rest again. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, he says, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, the passage, They shall not enter my rest. That is, he's speaking of the punishment of the people. The application, he says, then is, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, saying, Today, saying through David, after so long a time as it had been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day for that. So there remains a Sabbath day for the people of God. For the one who has entered the rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter into that rest. As believers under the new covenant, we understand that A great deal has changed. Specifically, we do not have these Sabbath laws. And yet the Sabbath still stands as a powerful picture for us. It stands as a constant check of accountability regarding how we view ourselves and how we view our weekly events. And so while our practice looks somewhat differently today than it did for the Israelites, there still ought to be that weekly reorientation before God. There's a reason why we go to church, why we do this. It's not because you have nothing better to do. I assume you have lots of work to do. But it's because by coming to church on a Sunday morning, you are forcibly telling yourself, I'm not dependent upon myself. I'm not relying upon my own work. And just as I did not save myself for my sins, I cannot provide myself sustenance for all eternity. I come to church as a reminder of the fact that it is God who has made me. It is God who has recreated me. It is God who will deliver me into perpetual rest in the future. We go to church also not because it just reorients us with God, but because it reorients us with this community. Because as we gather here this morning, as we gather every week, we're reminded that we're not alone in the struggle. As we sit around people that we might not have a lot in common with, we're reminded that while I might not particularly like that person day to day, God loves them. God saved him, God saved her just as God saved me. And so as we join this community, it again reorients ourselves to that community that we are designed to live in. It forces us out of the individualism of our culture and reminds us this is more natural, this is what you were created to enjoy. And as we sing songs of worship to God, as we hear his word preached, 
We are reminded and we're given a picture ultimately of where we are headed. We're reminded that while we are called to work day in and day out and do that which is pleasing to him, our ultimate value is not tied up in our occupation. It is not defined by your vocation. It is defined by the fact that you were created in the image of God and someday he will bring you back into eternal rest in that garden for all eternity. It is to that end that we are designed to live and it is to that end that must affect our daily lives, our daily devotion. And so as we consider all of this today, brothers and sisters, there is so much to be said of the story. So much more that we could explore. But for the time being, I, I encourage you to consider how this affects our daily lives for unbelievers. You desire freedom, I know. You desire to do that which will bring you joy, but Genesis 1 tells us very clearly you'll experience no freedom, you'll experience no joy if you are disconnected from your creator. You were designed for a purpose and that purpose is to please him. Apart from him, there's no rest. There's only toil. There's only damnation. And so unbeliever, profess faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, for my brother and sister in Christ, let's be a reminder of how glorious and how beautiful the image of God is. Let us daily strive to live in dependence upon the Father. Let us daily strive to always treat those around us with the proper love and respect they deserve as beings made in the image of God. Let us build up the community that we're called to live in. Let us do the work that God has called us to do, but let us always do it with an eye on the future, knowing that our day of rest will come. And let us pray that it comes soon. That being said, let me close this in prayer and we'll close with one last song. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for the beautiful truths that are found here in Genesis 1. Time does not permit us, God, to fully explore the many ways this applies to us, God. But I pray that as we leave this place today, we might be inspired to have these conversations with fellow image bearers. Whether they profess faith in you or not, might this inspire us to speak of the beauty of creation. But as we read of that beauty as brothers and sisters in Christ, let us read it, not simply through the lens of creation, but also with a reminder of how in Christ we are recreated, we are made new. Let us rejoice in that fact, God. Let us daily be reminded of the fact that everything we are, everything we have, everything we will ever have is a gift from you. What is man that you should think of us, God? What is man that you should give us dominion over the earth? And what is man that you would send your son to be crucified on our behalf? Might that reality cause us to be increasingly enthralled by your love and amazed by your beauty? And might it drive us to be the proper ambassadors that you've created us to be. Be with us as we close now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.